Narrating the history of the Peloponnesian War, historian Thucydides explained it was the rise of Athens and the fear which it instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. Deriving from the ancient Greek history, Harvard's Kennedy School professor Graham Allison came up with the term Thucydides' trap to account for tension and conflicts caused when a rising power challenges an established power. Longtime defense policy analyst and prominent scholar, Professor Graham Allison, author of Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? is joining us on the line. Professor Allison is visiting Seoul at the moment and delivered a keynote speech at a forum hosted by the Chief of Staff of the ROK Army yesterday. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. First of all, thank you so much for joining the studio. Um, well, I just tried to sum up the idea of a Thucydides' Trap, but can you elaborate and explain what it means for us again? Well, you gave an excellent summary. So uh, Thucydides, uh, most uh, or many people may not be familiar with, but Thucydides was the father of history. He wrote the first ever history book. And as you said, he wrote about the great war in classical Greece that laid waste the two major city-states, Athens and Sparta. He identified a pattern that's been repeated over and over in history. In fact, in my book, I look at the last 500 years, I find 16 times a rising power threatens to displace a major ruling power, 12 of those end in war, 4 of them in not war. So to say inevitable is a bit strong, but to notice that in the rise of China and its impact on a ruling U.S., we're seeing this pattern play out again, I think it is appropriate, and it reminds us how dangerous this dynamic is. And I guess the U.S. and China relations right now, although there's no physical or military power exchange between those two countries, and of course, uh, the trade tension is going on right there. And why did you apply the concept of this Thucydides trap to U.S. and China relations? Well, if one tries to ask how to understand the swirl of so much information, so much noise, so much rapid change, Putting events up against a canvas of history is often clarifying. And I think if you ask what's happening in the relationship between the U.S. and China, what has been happening for the last decade and what will be happening for the next decade, we see an extraordinarily rapidly rising China that is rivaling the U.S. and even surpassing the U.S. in many domains. in such a in a in a in a pattern that reflects precisely uh, Thucydides' insight about what happens when a rising power is rising. It thinks I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I deserve more say, I deserve more sway. The current arrangements didn't take account of my interests, and the ruling power feels threatened by this because it says, "Wait a minute, the status quo is not just a status quo. This is the international order." And this is an order that's permitted you to grow up, so you should be supporting it. So in that tension, both parties become vulnerable to third-party actions or accidents. It's not that one or two, one of the other, the stronger or the weaker, decides this is a good time for a war. That's not what happens. What happens is some other thing happens, for example, an event on the Korean Peninsula or Taiwan, that one or the other feels obliged to respond to, and that sets in motion a spiral at the end of which they find themselves in a war. 
And the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un had visited China twice before he met President Trump in Singapore, plus one more visit after the summit earlier this month. So in your view, what kind of role is China playing in the negotiation process of North Korea's denuclearization? A good question. And the answer in short is complicated. Uh, so uh, the Chinese initially felt left out uh, because all this was happening right there on their border. The Chinese think they're the dominant power in the region. Who, How, how could uh, President Moon and uh, Kim Jong-un and Trump be doing this all without China? So China then rapidly got back into the act. And I think the Chinese are trying to take account of their own interests and making sure they exert considerable influence, which they certainly are able to do. But at this point, I think both their interests and the South Korean interests and the American interests in the denuclearization of North Korea are aligned. And so this is a good example of how parties can work together to defuse crises that could otherwise drag them into Thucydides' trap. So I, I regard this as a positive development. And with this denuclearization process and talks and summits going on, U.S. and North Korea relations seems to be improving for the moment compared to last year, of course. Um, But are you still concerned that the next war might be fought on the Korean peninsula between the U.S. and China? Well, it's a candidate, but I think uh, fortunately over the past year, even just the past six months, what was one of the leading candidates for a third-party event that could become a crisis that could drag China and the U.S. into a war that neither wanted but could nonetheless devastate the Korean Peninsula. That risk has declined significantly as a result of the developments that we've seen. So I would say, uh, uh, to just to repeat, that if the, if the question is, are, is war inevitable, the answer is no. Are the U.S. and China destined for war in the sense that there's nothing they can do about it? The answer is no. But should they recognize that if they accept just business as usual and diplomacy as usual, they should expect history as usual, and history as usual in this case would be a war. So, therefore, there needs to be inventiveness, like the inventiveness that I think we've seen, uh, both uh, on the part of China and the U.S. and South Korea, in trying to deal with the North Korean problem. Now, there's a long way between the current promise or hope and the results that people are aspire to. So I don't think we're going to see a denuclearized North Korea anytime soon. But as long as we're on a path negotiating towards that objective, we're certainly not having a war, and that's better than the alternative. And U.S. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis has visited Beijing earlier this week, and he was actually the first Pentagon chief to visit China since 2014. Is it an effort to boost strategic strategic trust between the two countries? Well, I, I think it was certainly timely for Secretary Mattis to go to Beijing, but I think this was not about trust, but really about trying to build some understanding to be clearer about the Chinese interest and about the American interests. And I think the Chinese President uh, Xi, when he talked to Mattis, told him, uh, let's be very clear, we're not talking about Chinese territory, not even an inch of territory. Uh, That means Taiwan, and the Chinese are very concerned that the Trump administration may be imagining that the Taiwan 
agreement that the Chinese believe the U.S. reached in order to normalize relations with China is something that the Trump administration would try to backtrack on. So I think the message from Xi Jinping to Mattis was, don't even think about Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But during the meeting, both countries agreed that they shared the common goal, which is denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And do you expect to see a steady cooperation between the U.S. and China toward the common goal? I, I do. I think that it's the, that the, there'll be ups and downs. And especially if we're having a trade conflict or even trade war at the same time, and as the overall relationship becomes, I think, uh, more fraught with uh, risks because of the underlying Thucydides and dynamic, nonetheless, on this issue where there's a high priority interest of both the U.S. and China, I suspect that the cooperation will be, will be positive most of the time. Well, the U.S. has actually been talking about uh, CVID, complete, uh, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization, uh, whereas China is actually a long-term ally of North Korea. So I guess Chinese are seeing this problem as a long-term process, whereas um, U.S., within or under the Trump administration, they seem like they want to speed up the process. Do you think uh, there will be any conflicts between those two countries helping uh, the Korean Peninsula to be denuclearized? You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, in my book, I give a description of uh, Chinese characteristics in foreign policy and American characteristics. So Americans think that problems have to be solved today or at most tomorrow. And Chinese understand that problems evolve over decades, sometimes even many, many decades. So I think the difference in the time horizons will be quite substantial. And I think the Chinese time horizon will be more realistic. So I think one of the questions for the Trump administration will be how easily or how quickly it adjusts to the reality that this is going to be a long, complicated process with many fits and starts and ups and downs. That's in the best of cases. And I think there have been some steps in that direction. Secretary Pompeo, who's the principal uh, uh, negotiator for, the, for President Trump on the exercise, is very realistic about the possibilities. Mm -hmm. Some critics in South Korea are expressing concerns that a good inter-Korean relations may weaken the U.S. and South Korea alliance, although the James Mattis yesterday did say the force the south uh in south korea the level of it will not be reduced but do you think the u.s influence in south korea as well as in the far east will eventually shrink well in some sense it's inevitable that as china gets bigger and stronger relative to the u.s and china is in the neighborhood and the u.s is at a distance that the relative position of the two parties will uh, evolve and if you look at, for example, who are the principal trading partners of all the countries in Asia? At the beginning of the century, it was the U.S., and today it's China. So that's understandable that there'll be that kind of evolution. But I think the U.S.-South Korean relationship and alliance has been something that both parties value greatly, and it's deeper than simply defending against North Korea. So I would think that we, if we're smart, 
we can adapt and adjust in a way that keeps what's important about the alliance, even as we, you know, adjust to new situations. Well, right now we are focused on U.S. and China relations and South Korea and North Korea, of course. But um, how, in your view, how do you think the other nations, such as European uh, nations or some other countries around the world, view the U.S. and China's um, relations or their progress towards South and North Korea? Well, I think that uh, for anybody who's been watching, if the alternative was going to be an American attack on North Korea that could have triggered a second Korean War, that would be a huge event for the world, everybody's breathing a sigh of relief. But I think since the North Koreans have been about this nuclear project for 25 years, and since they've agreed to denuclearization, on three previous occasions, but not done it, I think there's a reasonable level of skepticism about how quickly uh, progress will occur, and I think that skepticism is is appropriate, that we'll have to see step by step. And um, last question is that, well, this uh, Thucydides trap, right now you've compared that term to a U.S. and China relations, but do you see any posts um, Thucydides trap in the future? Well, I, I think we will be living for the next uh, decade or two or three or four with this Thucydidean dynamic, and that the challenge for all of us will be how to escape Thucydides trap. And I think fortunately, at this point, the North Korean case gives us a good example of what can be done by a lot of initiative. Mm-hmm. So that was Professor Graham Allison from the Harvard Kennedy School. Thank you so much for joining us this station today. Thank you very much.